from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The newly formed and announced Missouri Latino Caucus is the first of its kind in the state and consists of both elected and non-elected members, with some of its goals focused on policy, voter registration, and party building. On this episode of Politically Speaking, we talk with Missouri House Representative Robert Sauls, a member of the caucus, about its creation and his hopes for its success. We also talk with him about the upcoming 2022 general session, the must-accomplish task of redistricting, and what he believes the legislature will or won't accomplish. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Jason, it's good to have you back. (laughs) It's good to be back. I was uh, in the podcast wilderness for two or three weeks because of the birth of my daughter, Adele Todd Rosenbaum. But I'm back for now, but I will be gone again next year, and I will explain that in more detail at some point in January. Oh yeah, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I I don't need to you know psych myself out for hosting uh, that many episodes in a row without you. So, but uh, joining us via Zoom today in his office, which is in his district, he's the representative for the twenty first district covering Jackson County, Robert Souls. And we're so happy to have you on the show for the first time because this is your debut for our listeners. I would love for you to tell us about yourself, why you decided to get into politics, you know, about your district, your experiences, you know, just kind of give us a, a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess the first thing I would say is that I am an attorney by trade. I grew up in this district. This is my hometown. So I'm I'm representing the town in which I was born and raised in. Uh, My background as an attorney, I was a prosecuting attorney for about six and a half years and a public defender for about three and a half years. Uh, Also, I am a a JAG, an assistant staff judge advocate in the Air Force Reserve. So I do that. And then also this as a state representative. And I guess as far as how I got into politics, um, you know, I, I think 2016 meant a lot of things to, to different people. And for me, I saw it as an opportunity to get involved. I always had an interest in politics, uh, but that year specifically, I just I, I thought that we needed to have people who actually cared and uh, wanted to make a difference. And, and that's what I have uh, what I've modeled my life after in many different ways. So 2020 was a markedly different contest for you. I I don't believe you had a Republican opponent in 2018. Um, In 2020, you did have a Republican opponent, Vicki Riley, and you won by 36 votes. And one of the things that I've been wondering for a while is independence has traditionally been a very Democratic area. I mean, it is the home base, hometown of Harry S. Truman, so it's kind of synonymous with Democratic politics. Why has this area become more of a swing 
city in the last three or four election cycles. I, I, don't, I don't live in Kansas City. I'm not an expert on Kansas City politics. I'm genuinely curious why an election like yours last year was so close. Yeah, well, I think, uh, well, first off, you know, so I, I, you go back to 2016 and Trump did win, Tr- Trump won my district, but every other Democrat on the ballot won my district. This last cycle, I think with Trump on the ballot, we saw a lot of people, uh, you saw a little bit of a change, right? I mean, Trump still won my district, but I beat Joe Biden, I beat Nicole Galloway, I beat every other Democrat on, on the ballot in votes. So uh, I would say that I think that, that Trump being on the ballot makes a big difference. I think my district is a traditionally, as you indicated, I think it's an old school blue district. And um, you know the issues that I focus on are, are the ones that I think matter. And, and I think that's, that's part of the reason. We're excited to dig into this week's primary topic, which is about a newly created and announced caucus, which is the Missouri Latino Caucus. You know, Representative, give us an overview of the caucus. Yeah, so, you know, I'm very excited about this, and I think it's long overdue. I think Latinos are one of the most underrepresented groups in government in the state of Missouri. Representative Ani and I are the only two members out of 163 in the Missouri House who identify as Latino. And uh, to give you a frame of reference, there were six people named Jeff in the Missouri House last cycle and only two Latinos. So um, I think this is long overdue. And I, I believe that the Democratic Party is the big tent party. I truly believe there's a place for everyone here. And I think this is just another way to help illustrate that. When was this idea initially thought of, you know, kind of what was the process of, of becoming a part of it? Yeah, so so I've actually I had the hope to bring one to the Missouri House, uh, because I, I think that's equally important. But unfortunately, there aren't enough members to create a, a caucus in the Missouri House. So uh, this was a con- I had a conversation with uh, Manny Arbaca, who is, is one of the founders of this. Uh, and we discussed this, this process. And, and he uh, talked to some other folks. And, and I, I think he got the ball rolling on his side. And, and what are some of the goals of the caucus? You know, how does it plan to achieve said goals? I think that some of the goals are to prioritize empowering the voices of all Latinos throughout the state and to advocate for more just and humane treatment for Latino children, families, workers, and to share the values of our collective cultures, customs, and traditions. And this is the, you know, the first Latino caucus created in the state. You know, why do you feel that it was needed and why do you believe it took so long to form a caucus like this? Well, I I believe it's needed because I think many people don't know about the large Latino population within our state. And like like I mentioned, uh, we're just underrepresented in Missouri politics and Missouri government. And I think it's needed because for a multitude of reasons, one of those is I think you want to see people in politics who, who have similar backgrounds as your as you do, and, and and perhaps maybe look and sound like you. And I think I think everybody everybody wants that, you know, regardless of, of what your background is. I, I think it's important because everyone deserves a voice, and we hope that this caucus will be that voice for many underrepresented people within the state. And and. Do you think that this will open the doors for other minority caucuses? You know, why or why not? I think that it certainly can. And, and I think as for as for why, I think it, it you know, it's just one of those things you just it's it's um, 
I, like I said, I think the Democratic Party is the big tent party, and I think this is this is just what we should be doing. We should be uh, we should we should be looking to groups and, and make sure that everybody has a seat at the table and everybody has a voice. And, and that's you know to be honest, it's one of the reasons I got into politics. I think that that um, I my mom was a single mom, and you know I, I grew up as a uh, basically in a in a one bedroom house, and my mom always kind of taught me that. Uh, I should I should speak up for those who don't have a voice. It's, it's part of why I, I became an attorney, and it's part of why I got into politics. And I think this is just one of those things: being able to being able to know that you have a voice, being able to know that your voice is being heard. I think that's part of why this is so important. I, I think that one of the anecdotal reasons why people from Mexico or Central America don't come to Missouri. I think there's two reasons. Number one, Chicago is a huge hub for Latinos. I, I'm from the Chicago suburbs and grew up around a lot of people who you know, whose families immigrated from Mexico and other Central American countries. So I think that's one reason. The other, though, Missouri political leaders, and frankly, of both parties, have a pretty long tradition of really harsh rhetoric against uh, legal and non-legal immigrants. And I'm curious how you think this caucus is going to change the perceptions of that issue with the caveat that I understand Latinos are not monolithic on immigration. There are probably Latinos that want to reduce immigration from, uh, you know, countries like Mexico. And there's probably people that want to increase it. Like, how do you think this formation of this is going to change the, the dichotomy of that issue? Well, and I think I think you hit a really important point, and that is that these, you know, well, first off, there are, you know, Latinos have have, have various opinions on any on a, on various issues, and to include immigration, you're exactly right. Some some Latinos are for, for stricter immigration, while some are not. I think finding the collective voice is the important thing. I mean, I I think, for example, DACA is one of those things that that most people regardless of, of, of your nationality, tend to think that, that, you know, someone who's been here since they were two under 25 and, and have, have all these ties to the community and are you know, doing, you know, many cases serving in the military and, and working and going to school. I mean, to, to just throw them back to a country they've never known is, is in many instances cruel. And I think most it's finding the commonality that everybody has, uh, you know, finding a collective voice on issues. And I think that's one, for example, where I, I think you'd get that. When I mentioned both parties, um, it may just seem like I'm playing whataboutism or both siderisms here. But, but the fact remains, in 2016, the Democrats nominated somebody for governor who wrote a immigration bill with Chris Kobach when he was a Republican, Chris Coster, and he never repudiated any of his views on immigration. And I just was talking pretty recently with former U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, who in 2018 had an ad where uh, it featured an endorsement from Border Patrol agents. It really seems like a lot of high-level Missouri Democrats are really fearful of being targeted by Republicans on this issue as, quote-unquote, soft on immigration. Do you think that the formation of this caucus may finesse how Democrats, especially high-level Democrats, talk about the issue of immigration. Yeah, uh, well, I hope so. And ultimately, I, I think what what you're what you've tuned into is that's unfortunately that's politics, and, and people tend to focus on messages that are that are popular, 
And I think that is is one of the things that that uh, many politicians do. And while I, I certainly understand, I think I think the bigger issue is humane treatment, right? If you know, I, I I'm personally not I'm not saying anything to the degree of open borders or anything like that, but I do think we should treat people humanely. And I think that is one of those things that, that um, you know, it, it should be it should be guaranteed. It should be required. You know, I, I think a lot of times it's a matter of you treat people the way you want to be treated, not because of who they are, but because of who you are. And I think that as, as a state, as a people, as a country, I think it's important that we do that. This caucus consists of both um, allies and members. Kind of why this distinction? Why include allies in this conversation? Because I think ultimately we're all we're all part of it, right? You know, if you want to know, it's it's kind of that. Uh, I know Jason Kander has repeatedly uh, mentioned the the pick up an oar comment. I think it's the same thing here, right? Just because you know I'm an elected representative. The, the members as well. I think we all have a part in this. We all have have uh, have our work to do, and everyone deserves a voice. And we hope that that, that we can be that voice. And it also is formed by both elected officials such as yourself and supporters. You know, do, do you think this bolsters or does it damage the political power of the caucus if it consists of people who are just beyond elected officials? No, I think it's, I, I think it's helpful. I think it's, I think it's great because quite frankly, a lot of times in politics, people surround themselves, uh, you know, with, with um, perhaps a lot of, a lot of, I guess you, a lot of elected officials. And so that is another way that we need to be able to have, I, I think all opinions, just like I mentioned a minute ago, about the about the Democratic Party being a big tent party, I think it's the same concept. We need different. You know, I, I don't want to surround myself with a bunch of yes men or yes women, yes persons. I want to surround myself with people who will challenge my opinion, so that that way I can make sure that I, I I include other other voices, other thoughts into what I'm thinking and what I what I do. What does the future of Missouri look like in terms of Latino representation? You know, what challenges are there? Well, I, I think, as I mentioned, the, the part of the problem is that we're so underrepresented. And, I, and the hope is that, all, you know, I, I know that redistricting can be used to help with, with representation here. But ultimately, I would like to see, I'd like to see more Latinos in office. I think, you know, as a growing population within Missouri, they they should they should feel as though their voices are represented just as anyone else, and communities are important in representing communities, and um, so so my hope is that that this caucus will help to do that. We need to take a break, but when we return, we're talking about the 2022 session. And we're back on Politically Speaking. Again, I'm Sarah Kellogg, speaking from Jefferson City. And joining me in St. Louis is St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum, and our first-time guest joining us via Zoom in his office, Representative Robert Sauls. So, Representative Sauls, the general session is now only months away. You know, what are some of your overall impressions on how this session is going to go? Well, it is an election year. So, uh, again, so everything will... uh, Go to HE double hockey stick again. <laughs> it's probably, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times in election year that that's what drives a lot of the a lot of what's said, a lot of what's passed, and uh, I think we'll probably likely start out of the, out of the gate with redistricting. 
I would anticipate that initiative petition reform will likely be up for modification, which I'm not a fan of. And uh, I think those are two things that we would pr- will probably look at at least through on the House side. Well, let's talk about redistricting, which as listeners of the show know, is like my favorite topic in the world. Um, <laughs> are, uh, just remind me again, are you in the fifth congressional district right now? Yes. Okay. Do you think that Republicans will spare the fifth congressional district from being turned into a GOP leaning district? Or do you think that national pressure that we're kind of hearing about on the Twitters, so to speak, will prompt the GOP to go after Emanuel Cleaver? Well, I think I think the smart play is certainly not to do that, because as they've as uh, as I think they've even expressed splitting that up in, into some kind of wagon wheel approach will ultimately potentially make his seat more difficult to attain. It will, will make other seats uh, more in play. And those are things that those are those are things you certainly have to consider when you're drafting or when you're trying to make the maps. So ultimately, uh, I think they've I've, I've heard conversations on both sides of this that they're going to that they're not going to. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure I'll find out just just before you do, uh, but I, I certainly hope that they, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, they'll, they'll run into problems if they do. You know, I think that the reason that this issue is coming up is we're seeing Illinois Democrats push through one of the most aggressive partisan right. gerrymanders maybe in the history of the country. And this comes around the same time that Democratic groups have spent millions of dollars over the last two election cycles, including here in Missouri for clean Missouri, uh, to push for so-called fair redistricting. From a philosophical level, do you think that Illinois Democrats have made it harder for your party to argue for fairness when they are clearly, that is clearly not a concern to them and they just want to maximize Democratic gains to make up for Republican gains in places like Texas, Ohio, and North Carolina? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's an important point. And most, you know, I I think the important thing for everyone to remember here is that both parties are doing that. Republicans are doing it just like they're doing it. I mean, they're doing, as you mentioned, Texas. I think Arkansas, I think they've drawn it in such a way that there's not even one uh, Democrat seat or maybe, you know, I mean, it's the the reality is both parties are doing it. The the irony is that, that, you know, the people don't want that. I don't think it's good. I don't like the, I, I think districts should be competitive. I think, I think they should, you, you should have to draw districts in such a way that, that makes it so that, because the reality is, you know, for example, you've got districts like the district right next to mine, really on either side are, are you know, like the district to my West is like 80, 20 Democrat. The district to my East is, or just over, just maybe one district over to my East is the other way around 80% Republican. So maybe one district in between mine and that one. But the point is that, you know, if you are, let's say you're, let's say you're a Democrat in that Republican seat, you can be upset with the way that your representative is handling things, the way they're voting. And, and as I, as you've seen through, you know, some representatives have just gotten rude to their constituents and there's no recourse for that. I mean, you know, uh, I've seen some representatives handle people on Twitter in a way that I can't even fathom. And the recourse, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, that person can say, I'm gonna run against you, I'm gonna vote against you, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to, you know, raise money against you. And that person, it doesn't really matter because that person is going to, that person's most likely going to win a primary because they've already got the name ID. And at the end of the day, the district is drawn so, so harshly that it, there's no chance that anyone other than that party is going to win. And I think it's just, I think it's bad for politics. I think it's bad for representation. And as far as, I guess, going back to the underlying question that you mentioned, I think, as I said, both parties are doing it. And the best thing that can happen is, I would say, is, is something at the national level that forces it. Because the reality is, Illinois has no incentive to. Illinois has no incentive to do this when states like Arkansas and other states are doing it as well. And I think, you know, I think the, the district should be drawn fairly, but we're not gonna see any change until there's uniform change throughout the country. And that has to, in my opinion, that starts in, in Washington. And we have to see something pass at the federal level that says states aren't going to do this. And, and so like a forcing like a clean Missouri type type uh, legislation that, that, that every single state will have to do. The legislature going into 2022 has some big items that they need to accomplish, like you mentioned, Representative, including redistricting, including appropriation of American Rescue Plan Act funding. You know, what is the plan for accomplishing this? What's the plan for accomplishing those? Well, yeah, these must need, you know, you know, small, only a tiny question of how are you going to do these giant, you know, things that you have to get done this year? I, I would say one bite at a time, right? I think first, I think redistricting has to be addressed first. I mean, we're, we're in a position where, you know, filing is supposed to begin in February, the legislature begins in January, and we don't even have, we don't have maps done yet. And I wouldn't anticipate that they're going to be done by, by the first of January, I don't think, and it may, it may be just barely in time. But, uh, you know, this is going to be something that needs right out of the gate, we have to focus on, and we have to get it done, because the idea of having filing opening and not you don't even know what your district is going to look like, which is just, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So uh, I think that will be, I think, as I you know, said, one bite at a time, first, we're going to deal with the redistricting part. And I think we have to. Do you think that gives kind of an advantage to incumbents of people with name recognition? Like maybe they would want to delay the process because they know their name's already out there. I think it could, I think ultimately it could, but um, you know, I mean, that, that, that's not going to matter if somebody's in, you know, if you if, if they, because as sometimes happens, sometimes uh, representatives are drawn together. So you may have name ID, but the, you know, you're now in with a, with a seat where another representative has name ID. So, uh, you know, I mean, it just, that's why these are so important. I mean, they really ought to be, in my opinion, ought to be doing them quicker and faster and we should have them done by now. So a colleague of yours, Representative uh, Ashley Ani said recently on the show, you know, your fellow caucus member, uh, between redistricting and representatives that are running for higher office, she doesn't see too much passing like beyond that, like in regards to policy. Do you kind of agree with that assessment that maybe less will get done this year because of these higher obstacles that are just that we're starting off with? I think that that. Uh... Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, it is an election year, so there's likely going to be a lot of the same, you know, a lot of the same oldies, but but classics are going to, I'm sure, appear. Uh, you know, voter voter suppression is likely going to be something that we seem to always address, and uh, I think things that that 
I think that's the, the problem. You know, I, I have a love-hate relationship with politics. I absolutely love what it could be. I love the idea of people getting together and working together to try to better their communities, to try to better the, the, the lives of people. I think that's what politics is at its core. But unfortunately, it becomes something, it morphs into something else. And particularly within an election year, there are these you know, things, it's about, it's about uh, flashy things in the news, right? What, what can we, what can we talk about that, that, that is going to get people to, to press a like button on, on, on Facebook or Twitter or something to that effect. And it just, I think it's, it's, it's in many ways ruining politics. Uh, I guess <laughs> politics wasn't ruined before. I don't know, but um I would say that the policy is probably a lot of times we see the same bills. I mean, you know, it's, it's even in my three years here, I've, I've seen a lot of the same bills over and over again, and it's just, you know, they may pass out of the house, but they have to pass out of the Senate as well. Often, you know, we file, I don't know, 2000 bills a year and 140 get across the finish line each year. So, and that's probably on the high side. I think sometimes it's 70, 80, yeah, I want to talk about election-related bills. Um, would w- one thing that was proposed last year was reinstituting Missouri's government-issue photo ID requirement and also creating a no-excuse in-person absentee period where you could go to an election authority and and cast your uh, ballot without an excuse. Uh, if you've listened to this show, I have said all sorts of bad things about Missouri's excuse system. It, it's unenforceable. You can put down that you're out of town and not be out of town and nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, um, it's it's a joke. I'm sorry, but it is. Do you think that that would be something uh, – I assume nobody in your caucus is going to vote for the, for anything resembling – a government issue photo ID requirement, but would it at least be be some sort of victory if you were able to essentially hammer away at the no excuse system? Would that be an acceptable outcome for you? Yeah, you know, I think that that you know, as anything, and, and oftentimes, and really, what we should be doing as as a as a body is we should be working together to work on issues that we problems that we have. And so I think that is an example like that would be something where you're, you're both working together and, and, and working towards the same goal. I would like, you know, I think part of the problem we have, so that's, that's a good example. I don't like, I think the excuse absentee ballot thing is ridiculous as well. And I, I think, you know, but also I, I think I, I I think it should be easier to register to vote. And, uh, you know, I think we should make it, I think we should be making it easier for people to vote legally. And I, I think what we see is something, you know, not just throughout the state, but throughout this country, just, just ridiculous legislation that's push, pushed and put forward that, you know, the idea that you can, you can make a, you could be a felon for giving somebody water to, you know, in, in line to vote is, is just absurd. And, but that's what you get, right? That, that's what you get in this day and age. And I think that we should be, we should be working together to, to face some of these challenges. I, I think, you know, my going back to the voter ID part, I think that, you know, constitutionally there, there, there is a problem. There has been a problem. This, this voter ID is passed. It's passed on the ballot. It's passed to the house. 
and and through the Senate. And but you know the 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 way that the law is drafted is such that it it doesn't survive a Supreme Court challenge. And that is something you have to consider. You have to have to consider those things when you're when you're making this this laws like that. One other election related question for me. One of the ideas that came out. Uh, at the very end of last year's session was this idea of having statewide or congressional runoffs. And a lot of people, including myself, frankly, believe that that was proposed by some Republicans who are fearful that former Governor Eric Greitens is going to get a plurality in the Senate primary. Um, And this is a way to uh, hold him off at the pass, so to speak. I, I, I could see it benefiting Democrats in certain ways, like I don't know if there's an opening in the fifth district and it's still Democratic. It, it may be a way to sort through that primary. What's your thought on that idea, which may or may not gain momentum uh, in in 2022? I don't I don't particularly like it. I mean, I think that's what happens when you insert politics into elections. It's more than they already are, right? I mean, obviously they're there, but I mean. The idea that, you know, I think this is, is, like you mentioned, I think this is being pushed out of the fear that perhaps, you know, that the state tends to be more red and that someone like Greitens, if he were to win, that potentially he could lose in a statewide, in a statewide vote against a, a Democrat. And I don't, you know, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, I think that we need to be, I don't particularly like it. I don't like the idea, but I think we should be... I think we should just stick with what we've got. I think it's the, the fair way to do it. And it has nothing to do with whether or not, a, you know, because it's not, there's no guarantee that he is going to win. And ultimately, I think that we then change elections for the future for this one instance in which, you know, we're concerned that perhaps our, our you know, that someone within a party may lose an election. I mean, that's, that's every single cycle, right? Though Democrats are in the minority party, there have been times where the caucus has played a role in passing major legislation. You know, the example that I use a lot now is is the gas tax hike. You know, do you see opportunities for that to happen this session? If so, where do you maybe see that happening, bill or policy wise? Sure. So, you know, every, every year I would say something to that effect happens. Just like you mentioned, the gas tax, PDMP. I mean, every year there's one bill or maybe two bills that don't that don't get by without democratic support as far as what that will what that will be this year i i, I don't honestly know <laughs> but um you know i think that uh i think it's important that we keep we keep pushing uh the you know the the legislation that we want the, the legislation that's important to missouri voters and uh i i think ultimately we'll come across something that will that we will get done And with this giant list of to-do things, you know, there is a very real possibility that you might run out of time. Do you think that there will be special sessions this year after the general session ends to address issues that maybe aren't tackled because of these larger items that need to get done? You know, just just based on the way that the the, special sessions are initiated, it's it's basically either you you need a big chunk of the legislature to agree to do it or the governor has to do it my opinion as to what the governor is going to do. I think based on the, the last special session that we had, I think that, that he has uh, not wanted to have another one, right? I mean, I think we could have easily had one this last year, this, this year to address a number of things, you know, specifically Medicaid, right? Medicaid expansion and what we're going to do and the money in there. I think, I think we could have done that 
but we didn't, or the, the FRA, right? I mean, there, there's stuff that we could have handled that we didn't because he didn't want to have a special session. And I think that's because, and I, I think this just goes to the fact that, I, I, you know, Republicans control four out of five statewide seats and 70% of the House, 70% of the, of, of the Senate. And, there, you know, there's still this, this struggle to sometimes get things done. And, you know, I think that's a matter, I, I, I personally, I mean, I, I wouldn't know because I've not been in that situation, but, you know, I, I feel like it's just a matter of getting people in a room. And I think that, that to some degree, that's kind of on, on, the, on the governor for not working these things out in advance. It's not like you're dealing with people who are 100% opposed to, to your way of thinking, you know, and, and even in that case, you can still reach some agreement based off of, of just talking things out, sorting through things. And I think that's one of the problems with this. So as, as far as whether or not he'll, you know, we'll have a special session to address this. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know because uh, I think he's, he seems a little bit um, gun shy to do that put it that way. And um, you know what? I don't I probably don't see it happening on the, uh, through the legislature, I think that's happened maybe twice in Missouri's history. Um, and I just, I, I think it'll probably have to most likely come from the governor and I just don't think he's going to do it. Well, thank you so much, Representative Sauls, for joining us on the podcast to talk about both this new caucus and offering your insight on the session ahead and what may or may not happen. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. You can follow Jason on Twitter at at Jay Rosenbaum. And Representative Sauls, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Well, I'm on Twitter and I'm also on Facebook. So either either way there, of course, any uh, issues with help, they can always contact my office. I'm happy to help in any way that I can. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, so long.